Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. What comes to mind when you hear the names Mahalia Jackson, James Cleveland, Shirley Caesar, Cece and B.B. Winans, and Kirk Franklin. For me, I think of a rejoiceful noise and the power of gospel music. Songs that talk about faith, conviction, strength, as well as weakness, and a devotion to the spirit. Black gospel music is one vehicle that African-Americans have used to express themselves and share their experience of living here in the United States. It's a musical genre that's given birth to movements of social justice, as well as legendary artists in other genres. Even though it's getting close to 100 years since gospel music rose to popularity, it continues to be relevant. Renowned scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr. looks back into black gospel music in his new four-hour docuseries, Gospel. In association with PBS and WETA, Gates and producers and directors Stacey L. Holman and Shayla Harris examine the history of black religious music, and they dig deep into the origin story of how gospel blended sacred spirituals and the blues to create something new, something powerful. For more on the docuseries, I'm joined by the co-producers and co-directors of the project. Shayla Harris is an award-winning New York-based producer who has worked as a director and producer on The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song, and Making Black America Through the Grapevine. Stacey L. Holman is an award-winning filmmaker based in Harlem. She produced episode three of the 2018 PBS series Reconstruction, America After the Civil War, hosted as well by Henry Louis Gates Jr. And she was a producer on the critically acclaimed documentary Tell Them We Are Rising the story of black colleges and universities. They graciously took time out of their busy schedules to talk with us, so let's get with it. Stacy and Shayla, thank you for joining us. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you, Khalil. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Really, it's truly, truly a pleasure. You know, when I think about this, I have the question of, what made you all want to tell this story? Why? I'd love to hear from both of you. Shayla, you first. Well, um, as you mentioned in our introduction, Stacy and I both worked with um, Professor Gates, or Skip as we'll call him, um, on Black Church. Uh, this is our story. This is our song, which was a pretty incredible series to work on to talk about the institution of the Black Church and um, how it was so central to the economic and social life of African-Americans. And, um, you know, one of the things that we felt like we couldn't dig too much into in that series was this idea of cultural expression that emerged out of the church, um, the sort of soundtrack of Black spirituality that you see as a thread um, throughout that exploration. And so we thought, why don't we do a follow-up where we could just focus on gospel music and Black preaching and the double, double helix of um, this soundtrack uh, in the Black church. And so we decided to call this uh, Black Church the Musical and, and delve uh, really deeply into those two incredible art forms and, and how they emerged out of the, the Great Migration um, in the early part of the 20th century. What was the process when you all first got together to decide, hey, we're going to do this idea, we're going to dive deeper into this topic that we only touched on briefly with the previous topic about the black church that you mentioned, what was the process? What were the first conversations like that you all had? Well, we looked at, um, first of all, who were the 
the main characters for this time period from the Great Migration up into present day that are key when you're talking about the story of gospel. And we realized there was some overlap. Um, you can't talk about gospel and not talk about Kirk Franklin. You, know, you can't talk about gospel and not talk about um, Mahalia Jackson. And we talked about them in the Black church as well as uh, a nod to Thomas Dorsey. But what we needed to do was really to dive deeper into these stories and just find another thread um, of what really makes them who they are and what their contribution to gospel has been and continues to be. So, you know, the other good thing is that there were some stories that ended up on the cutting room floor that we're able to revisit. Uh, but what we do is we just kind of put it on a board and do a, an outline and Skip is really um, a fan, I should say, of chronological storytelling. So mm -hmm. we started from the 1920s, went to the 1930s, 40s until present day. And we also had an amazing group of advisors that weighed in uh, who also kind of confirmed and also brought some other characters to light that might not have gotten the recognition um, before or even now. Is there anything that either of you may have learned working on this project that you didn't know after you finished working on the Black Church? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I think one of the things that surprised me so much is that um, all of these, a lot of the sort of central figures that we think about in, in gospel music and, and black preaching, um, they're all in a network together. Um, you know, I think about someone like Mahalia Jackson and her relationship with someone like James Cleveland and also with C.L. Franklin and uh, her relationship with Martin Luther King. And, you know, there is this sort of cross-pollination that happens um, between these um, singers and these preachers where they, they're sort of learning from each other and they're kind of echoing each other. I think we sort of thought that that might be the idea when we started this series, but um, as we started delving um, a lot deeper into the stories, those those connections and the sort of baton passing that you see from one generation to the next, where they're influencing each other and learning from each other and collaborating with each other, um, was really really surprising for me. I'm curious about how you all took the history, this rich and deep history, with so many people, and how you were able to whittle this down into four episodes. How do you all make that happen? It was very hard. <laughs> you know, we, yeah. we did leave um, some characters on the cutting room floor. But one thing we do is we really, as as Shayla said, you know, a lot of these stories and individuals are connected to each other. And in doing four hours, we want to make sure that we show that connective tissue, that hour one can speak to hour four and hour two can speak to hour three and, you know, vice versa. Um, and we also look at, too, what is going to advance the story? You know, what is really going to keep um showing us and teaching just the prog the progression of gospel and the other thing that is archive you know this is a historical documentary and we are visual medium and unfortunately you would think because we were excited to start in 1930 because we're like great we're gonna have tons of footage we're gonna have tons of um imagery and it was not so much the case um so, you know, a lot of stories and some stories really kind of ended up um, losing not only for time, but because we just didn't have archive. There was not the material there. There were not the pictures. There was not the footage. So that was kind of really a, a, a obvious kind of like, well, unfortunately, you know, we can't tell the story. You don't want to do a film with all talking heads, mm -hmm. nor do you want to do something with all animation because that's 
you know, that's animation. So between the combination of all those elements, um, you know, we were able to, to collapse it to four hours, which was still very hard. You know, we always, when we were digging in and Shale and I were like, okay, and our producers were like, okay, we need like a similar to black church. We need more hours, but you know, we made it work with four. Mm. You know, that, that raises a curious point within me thinking about the lack of footage the lack of, as you all were putting this together, about who, whose stories are not told because there is no footage of them. Basically, they've become legend, and the stories are passed on by word of mouth with people within the gospel music community. Did you all discover any of those, any people who were kind of unsung in a way? Well, one story that unfortunately did not make the cut was Arizona Drains. I mean, she is, before there was Dorsey, there was Arizona Drains, Drains, and she was um, uh, a musical genius. I'll just sum it up up to that, who was blind and had um, a record deal. Unfortunately, like so many African-Americans and other people at that time, they just got a very shady deal um, and did not get her due in terms of recognition, nor her due in terms of money for just what she had crafted. But, you know, the the blues, the the boogie woogie, she did that on the piano. Mm. And, um, you know, there's only there was only one picture of her that existed. And I'll even say like Mahalia Jackson, like Shayla, <laughs> Shayla and I and our producers, what we always do is we're all in our separate edit rooms. And then when we see each other's films, we're like, okay, I'm using that picture. I'm using that picture. <laughs> I'm using that. So, you know, we're like rock, paper, scissors for like the one young picture of Mahalia Jackson. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging, you know, it's, but, you know, we, we find ways to work around it. Um, but, you know, that's why it's really important for us to really to own and have that agency of imagery. You know, Gospel music has led to many other legendary artists. People get their start in performing and as musicians and singers in the gospel arena in their local churches. Aretha Franklin comes to mind, someone who got her start in church, ends up becoming this this legendary phenomenon for music in general. What what did you all discover about how gospel music and its evolution really truly affected music, not just here in the United States, but worldwide. So one of the things that uh, was really surprising to us, and I think might be surprising to some of our audience is that, uh, you know, most black people don't just walk up to a mic and just start wailing, Mm. you know, Um, the church itself is this um, real laboratory and real training ground for folks to hone their craft and to get feedback from an audience, that literal column response that, um, you know, happens within the confines of the of the church itself to really help them get better, learn how to articulate, learn how to um, keep the attention of an audience. And um, so there are a lot of ways uh, in in the history of gospel music that beyond just the the church itself, but there are these conventions and workshops and um, training grounds for musicians to to hone their craft, starting with, you know, Thomas A. Dorsey and the National Convention of Gospel Choirs and Choruses um, that continued on to James Cleveland's Gospel Music Workshop of America, which laid the foundation for some of the folks that we still listen to today, like Kirk Franklin and Yolanda Adams all got their start at those workshops. And they're all congregating and sharing knowledge and putting out records and and honing their songwriting chops and 
um, there is this kind of feedback loop that happens within those conventions that, um, you know, still kind of resonate today. And, and one of the things that we sort of took from that is that gospel in and of itself as a craft is incredibly innovative. It's drawing from all of the secular music of each of its eras, you know, from Thomas Dorsey drawing on blues and jazz um, to someone like Kirk Franklin drawing on funk and hip hop. And, you know, the next generation of gospel folks will be bringing in their, you know, songs that they were listening to when they were young. Um, and so the the music continues. And, and that was one of the things that we wanted to kind of showcase and highlight was this sense of innovation, this sense of craft um, within the music itself. I mean, gospel music continues, continues to evolve every decade, it seems. I mean, one thing that I've paid attention to in the past 10 years, the rise of hip hop artists in gospel music. You've got artists like Lecrae, you've got even Kanye West has dipped into a former artist, if people are familiar, those of us over a certain age are familiar with MC Hammer. <laughs> he dipped into gospel music. When you think about hip hop music, the hip hop culture, the genre in itself, and gospel music, a lot of folks don't think that those two things naturally fit together. But these artists have found a way to bring the message of spirituality, of faith, of religion, incorporate that into hip hop, and it's beginning to grow from audiences. Um, two questions for you both. Are you familiar, do you listen to gospel-based hip hop, and why do you think it's growing in popularity? Stacy? I don't personally listen to it. Um... I do appreciate the message of it, but I don't, um, you know, I don't really listen to it. Um, but I do think, you know, unfortunately, again, that was one of the stories that we, we kind of, we don't really dig deep in it again due to time. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's the beat, it's the rhythm. It's the same thing that gospel, well, the blues, what Thomas Dorsey did, what Kirk Franklin did. So I think it's always, it's, what gets you moving. Um, and then there's the message <clears throat> that's woven in between that. Shayla, what about you? Yeah, I think one of the things that we learned and, and you know, what we came to appreciate about gospel music is that it's, you know, good news and bad, bad times. And it's all about um, conveying God's message in this world and that the the main goal of it is to reach people, is to convert, is to make people aware of, of this message. And so I think what's so amazing and innovative about what's happening with these this new generation of artists and and borrowing, you know, the secular rhythms of hip hop and, and all of that stuff is that these audiences are growing, that, you know, this music is not just church music, that the music continues to be alive and exist outside of the four walls of the church. And um, as I mentioned in, in many stories, the first time I heard, you know, you brought the sunshine was at a, a roller skating rink. Mm. Um, and I <clears throat> didn't grow up listening to to church music. Um, you know, I didn't grow up listening to gospel because I grew up Catholic, which doesn't necessarily have that same tradition. Um, and so for me, I just became enamored with the Clark sisters just through this really secular enterprise. I didn't necessarily think about it as gospel. I just was like, this is this is a banger. This is a bop. Hmm. Um, and I think um, that's what a lot of these artists are are doing in this generation is that, you know, we want to reach as many people as po possible, you know, and that's why the second century of gospel is called the Platinum Age. You know, these records and albums are reaching millions of people. Um, 
here and in this country and worldwide. And so I think for a lot of these artists, um, it is about reaching as many people as possible. And if you can use music to do that and contemporary um, black music to, to convey that message, why not use it? Now, from what I understand, this project, Gospel, got started because of things that hit the cutting room floor that you all weren't able to explore when you covered the black church. Do I smell hip-hop gospel coming because you all weren't able to dive into that pretty deeply? Well, that's dependent on viewers like you <laughs> for that to happen. Um, who knows? You know, we didn't know or even imagine that we'd be doing gospel. So um, if hip-hop is the next um, opportunity, then... Yeah. Well, look, when you get started, give me a call. I'll help you out. Um, <laughs> okay. Yes. So tell me this. What do you want audiences to take away from this series? And what do you want them to understand about the evolution of gospel music and preaching? Um, and I think Shayla and I will, will, we both agree and we on, on this, is that, um, you know, gospel is evolving. You know, well, we said it just with each generation, each decade, um, it's, it's, it's blues, it's hip hop, it's R&B, it's soul, it's funk, um, it's praise and worship. And gospel, I think, is just one of those genres of music that can you can drop it in any genre and, and it can work. And I think too, the other thing is people are really gonna understand that there are a lot of people who are instrumental in making gospel, gospel. Um, there are a lot of heroines that really have not gotten the recognition like Sally Martin or even Vicki Mack, uh, women who are who see the vision and know the potential and the possibilities of where gospel can go outside of those four walls. Um, and in terms of preaching, and I'm going to toss it to Shayla because she says this much more eloquently than I do, but just really what the choir director and the preacher, that relationship. Yeah, I think for me, the the thing I want people to take away is that, um, you know, there's a, there's a way that gospel and preaching have been reduced to just African-American cultural art forms. But I think um, throughout the course of our series, you'll start to see that both of these art forms have had an impact on American history and American cultural history, um, not just politically and socially, but also artistically um, in terms of influencing all kinds of art forms that are not necessarily rooted in the church. You think about someone like Rosetta Tharp and her influence on rock and roll um, and, and things like that. And so I think um, audiences that maybe don't necessarily come from a church tradition will learn a lot. Um, and we'll come to appreciate a lot about what these two art forms have contributed to American culture. And I think particularly in this moment where, you know, people are seeking sort of comfort in a time of great uncertainty and some kind of affirmation and spiritual sustenance, I think both of these art forms will have a new resonance um, at this moment. And, and so we really, really hope people enjoy. You talked about spiritual sustenance. Now, I am not a member of any church. I don't follow any specific religion. But every once in a while, I will walk myself into a church where they have an amazing gospel choir just to hear and feel the resonance from that rejoiceful noise. And I stay to listen to the sermon that day. It's an amazing experience for me. It always helps me out as a form of spiritual therapy, let's say. I'm curious, were either of you personally or spiritually shaped by gospel sermons and preaching as you in your lives? Shayla? 
Well, like I said, I grew up in the Catholic Church, which has a very specific tradition that isn't necessarily what people have come to associate with like the black church or black preaching or black gospel music. Um, but I, you know, I did uh, sing in a gospel choir in college and um, some of the songs that Kanye West covered in his uh, Sunday service were songs that we sung um, during that thing. And uh, like you said, it is this sense of community and this sense of you're not alone. You know, you're, you're going into the future or going into this moment with a, an army kind of behind you. Um, and I, I think there is something powerful about that experience that I think a lot of people tap into. I know a lot of folks who listen to gospel music while they're working out or while they're, you know, at home just, um, and, and taking that, that message, um, outside of the church, I think is, is something that I think, um, is important and, and necessary and that shouldn't necessarily just be limited to the, you know, you don't, you didn't grow up in this tradition or you didn't, you don't, you don't go to a black church. And so you don't have access to, um, this message or this music. Um, I think that's what's so beautiful about, um, this, this art form, you know, think about a song like total praise, which came from a very spiritual place, which, you know, is now played at graduations and funerals and, and all kinds of things. And, and it speaks to the sort of universality of that beauty and the power of belief and faith um, uh, that I think a lot of people um, really need at this moment. Stacy, um, Well, I grew up going to a predominantly white church um, that was like non-denominational, so very much hymn-based, but my grandparents in Zanesville, Ohio, um, small Baptist church, um, two-hour services, which felt deadly as a kid, but mm. just, um, you know, the, the choir, my mom was going to probably just cringe when I say this, the choir wasn't the best, but I do remember the choir, you know? And what I mean by that is, you know, they weren't, they were small numbers, but mighty and mighty in worship and mighty in, in faith. And the other, um, influence, which, you know, as we're doing this, I completely was like, oh my gosh, I can forget this. But one of my childhood besties um, was her family was just a lineage of singers. Like they just came out singing, like everyone in the family could sing. Um, and it was a family Wheaton singers. And every year they would have a family concert. And it was just incredible. Just the voices, the harmonies, um, the song battles, um, you know, that, was something that I just, just, I absorbed. And then when it, when I became, you know, as an adult, um, you know, in my own walk, um, finding a church home that really spoke to me in song and also with preaching. Um, and I felt like those were, those childhood experiences were instrumental in that search. Final question for you both. Who would be on your Mount Rushmore of gospel artists, composers, singers, and musicians? Stacy, you first. Who's your who are your top four? Ooh. Oh my gosh. Okay. Rosetta Tharp, um, Mahalia Jackson. I would say any of the Hawkins. Mm. <laughs> any of the Hawkins family members. And um Shirley Caesar. That's quite a list. I know. <laughs> Wonderful. Shayla. Oh man. Um, you have to go with Mahalia Jackson. There's you know, she's the queen. Um Aretha Franklin, Clark sisters representing Detroit. Um, and then I think just finally, I'd lo I love Richard Smallwood. 
Wonderful. I want to thank you both for being with us. Shayla Harris and Stacey L. Holman both co-produced and co-directed the four-part docuseries Gospel, hosted by Henry Louis Gates Jr., also known as Skip. I want to thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, WPLN is hosting an event that will show an episode of the docuseries. Our event is being held at the National Museum of African American Music tonight. Head to WPLN.org for more information. When we come back, we'll talk with some local gospel legends who will talk to us and explain Nashville's connection to gospel music. Stay with us. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. As I let my mind run back, I can see a little old church sitting by the railroad track. Just a little shabby old place used to sing amazing grace. Talking about a good time, a mighty, mighty good time. Oh, as I let my mind run back, I can see a little old church sitting by the railroad track. Just a little shabby old place Used to sing amazing grace Talking about a good time A mighty, mighty good time The McCrary sisters take elements of classic soul, Americana, blues, rock, and R&B music and incorporate it into gospel music. When you listen to them sing, you can feel the joy in their voices. Audiences across the globe have felt their vibe. So have musicians of all genres. They've performed with the likes of Delbert McClinton, the Black Keys, Patty Griffin, the Winans, Donnie McClurkin, Roseanne Cash, Carrie Underwood, Hanks Williams Jr., Widespread Panic, and Sheryl Crow. And I could keep rattling off names, mm-hmm. but we only have an hour for this show because <laughs> the list is that long. For many, they are Nashville royalty on the gospel scene, and it is an honor to have them join us now. It's my pleasure to welcome Regina, Ann, and Alfreda McCrary to This is Nashville. Thank you all <laughs> for being here. Thank, Thank you for having us. Absolutely. That was so wonderful. <laughs> the perfect way to start off our week. Thank you. You know, Nashville has become home to so many talented musicians and singers, some of the most on the planet. Mm -hmm. You all are considered to be the cream of the crop in gospel music. Wow. How does that make you feel, Anne? Oh, I don't know, because I didn't know we were the cream of the crop. You know, (laughs) I'm just thankful uh, for the gifts that God has given us and uh, just do my part. Mm -hmm. We just try to do our part. You know, mm-hmm. that's it. When, when, Regina, when you think about gospel music in Nashville, what comes to mind, really? Uh, the good news. 
being used by God to spread the news, to tell people that their life is worth living. And no matter where they are and what they've been through, God loves them just where they're at. Mm. Yeah. You share that sentiment, Alfreda? Oh, I do. <laughs> I'm not much on, on talking, but I do. I share that. I, I agree with what Regina just said. Now, some of the foundational groups and singers that have really boosted and been hoisted Nashville's mm-hmm. gospel legacy, we got Dr. Bobby Jones, mm-hmm. the Johnson Ensemble, mm-hmm. the BCNN Males Choir, mm-hmm. and then the Fairfield Four, mm-hmm. which your father was a part of. Yes. Right? Yeah. Reverend, the late Reverend Samuel McCrary. He was a founding member of that. Okay, you know, Alfredo, what do you remember about those times? Not much? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm the baby, and I remember um, them coming to the house some, not a whole lot, and uh, I do remember them singing uh, more, not just, um, I know Daddy stayed gone a lot, traveling and singing, and I just remember them coming to the house, singing, rehearsing, and then maybe in concerts mm-hmm. and, you know, going to see them in concerts and different things like that. But these two would have more memory. They have more memory about uh, the start of the Fairfield Four and all <laughs> that stuff. And, you know, I was still, I still had dappers and stuff on. <laughs> well, t- well, tell me, Regina, what do you remember? What I really remember was we used to ask Daddy, could we uh, sit and listen to the Fairfield Four? Mm-hmm. And when they had rehearsals at the house. And I remember sitting over in the corner listening to them and listening to that bass singer and the the uh, I call it soprano, but it's first tenor, <laughs> and and the high notes that it, I mean there was not a piano, a guitar, a bass, drum, nothing. Their voices were the total instruments, mm-hmm. and to hear them, all it took was that one person to sing that note, kind of like what we did, mm-hmm. and I went mm, and everybody knew exactly where to fit in, and they went there. And I think that's where we got that from, where whoever's about to lead the song and we're going to do it a cappella, go, mm, and everybody was like, okay, I hear my part, and then we go for it. We used to sit and listen to them do that, and then when they left, we'd get up and mimic them. Oh, really? Slap the hip and boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Yeah, it was like that. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was two, two years old when I first started traveling with uh, with the Fairfield Four. Uh, I was two years old, and I remember all of that. I remember them. Um, I had to sleep in the back window. If you remember, cars used to have that <clears throat> that little panel back there in the back window. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would fix me a little bed back there, and that's where I would sleep. Wow. So I remember, I remember all of that. <laughs> You've been going on tour since you were a toddler. I, I really have. Wow. I really have. I, so I have a blast from the past for you. Oh, uh oh. Let's listen to this. Okay. Turn 
What do you think when you hear that? I can remember uh, whenever Daddy would start holding that note. I don't know about them, but I would be holding my breath. You know, <laughs> when he started, oh, I take a breath. Like, and I'm thinking in my mind, hold it, hold it, Daddy, hold it, Daddy. Mm-hmm. You know? oh, yeah. Now that was recorded in the 80s. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. After they had been on hiatus for 30 years mm-hmm. and they still sound brilliant and tight. Yes. It was absolutely amazing. I mean, I'm just thinking about it. Like, so performing there are Willie Preacher Richardson, mm-hmm. Reverend McCrary, mm-hmm. Wilson Litwaters, James S. Hill, and Isaac Freeman. Mm-hmm. That song came out in 1947 and uh-huh. 1948. Yeah. And it still resounds yeah. to this yeah. day. Yes. Now, your family had eight kids in the family, mm-hmm. right? What did your. What did your father tell you all about music? Mm. I mean, whenever we would come to him, it's not anything that he set us down and say, you got to do this and you got to do that, because he didn't want to pressure us into doing this, I think, unless that's something we wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know. But if we would come to him and ask him a question, he would just tell us everything we needed to know, but he never really just set us down and uh, told us about the industry because at that particular time, I don't know if people knew that was a music industry. You mm. see what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't think people knew that. They just sang. They loved <laughs> to sing, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and uh, they love to write. I know we have Daddy, they have so many songs <laughs> that they wrote that somebody else put their name on it, you know. Mm. But they didn't know anything about publishing and and BMI and all. They didn't know anything about all of that. So uh, that's just something that I looked up. Uh, Don't let nobody turn you around and all that kind of stuff. And saw how many millions. Cause it sold millions, mm-hmm. and I I thought, mm, wonder who got that money, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. But I can remember. I'm sorry, Ian. Go on. I can remember. Daddy used to say, um, "Don't mimic anybody. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yes. If mm. you sing a song, or if I sing somebody else's song, don't try to mimic. You know, every note, everything. 
what you do is take that song and let, let it minister to you first. Mm-hmm. And then, so if it minister to you first, you can take it to the people. Mm-hmm. But don't try to do everything that that person do. Do you. That I, I remember him. You know, he was really stern on that. Why are you trying to sound like that? No. Let mm-hmm. it minister to you first. Mm-hmm. Get your get your own identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, then flow and, with it. And he used to also, well, one thing he told me, being the seventh child out of eight, everybody sings. Everybody. Everybody. Okay. All mm-hmm. the, the four brothers, the four sisters, everybody could sing. Mama, daddy, everybody. And I remember one time I, I heard an argument between somebody in the house fussing about, I can sing better than you. And he, that's that's the day what he said to me has been, has penetrated my heart and been with me ever since. He said, singers are like trees. Every tree has a purpose. Hmm. God put trees right next to each other and they're different trees, but they all have a purpose. Every singer has their own divine uh, sound and it's not that a soprano sings better than an alto or a bass singer or anything like that. Everybody has a purpose and a reason why they sing the way they sing and do what they do. And when you start trying to compare yourself to somebody else, kind of like what Frida said, don't sing like this person. When you start comparing yourself to other people, you lose who you are because we're still figuring out and we're still experiencing and and embracing all the different sounds that come out of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why so many people love for us to come and sing with them is because you can't lock us down on gospel. You can't lock us down on country. You can't lock us down on R&B, rock and roll. You can't lock us down because whatever sound that is needed, we we get that sound out and we do it and we do it sincerely. Mm. And being raised in a house where everybody could sing, my parents would not deal with, oh, I sing better than you. They would sit us down and tell us to shut up and not sing for mm. I can imagine what talent shows were like when y'all came around. Oh, we had a basement. <laughs> we had a rock basement down in the house. And for years, we would put up a little curtain and we'd go down in that basement and we put on talent shows, and our mom and dad would sit down there and listen that, to That us. was them. I was probably gone by then. You remember? <laughs> I remember. Uh, honey, we had, I, no, well, I, re- Ricky, I remember we used to go down there and do a lot of stuff. Yeah, but. me and Ricky, <laughs> and my brother Ricky, he practiced being Some the preacher. Okay, okay. I don't want okay. <laughs> to remember. Let's take a real quick short break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with the McCrary sisters and learn about their feelings on the power of gospel music and where they see the genre headed. You can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kalele Colonna, and this is Nashville. I'm here with the legendary McCrary sisters, Anne, Regina, and Alfreda. 
we've been we've been discussing their lives and their legacy as singers in gospel music. They have blended multiple genres into their songs, pumping a vitality and energy into gospel music that really and truly sets them apart from others. Here's a live rendition of Amazing Grace from WSMV show Today in Nashville. The song was performed with their sister Deborah, who passed away in 2022. That is absolutely beautiful. The four of you sound to me like that's the definition of harmony and what it's supposed to be. My my condolences for the loss of your sister Deborah and your brother Sam Jr. You know, you all you promote the power of gospel music as being able to heal our spirits and our beings. How is gospel and singing being able to help you all heal? Oh man, you know, uh, honestly. When Deborah passed, and and I'm probably still going through a little bout of depression and stuff because uh, it was just in my mind, I think I always figured she's going to get better, you know, in my mind. So when she passed, it just kind of blew me away, you know. And uh, But the music, we knew that we had to keep on going. That's that's just the way it is, you know. Mm-hmm. We knew we had to keep on going. So um, that I don't know. That uh, what do you think, Gina? Because mm-hmm. I'm just <laughs> well. <laughs> for me, for the record, uh, we lost Deborah, and then we lost our brother Sam Jr., who you mentioned. But we had another brother, Donna Ray, uh, who passed first. It was Donna Ray, then Sam Jr. And then a few months later, Deborah. And I think the the death of our brother, he had COVID and he passed away. Then a few months later, Deborah passed away. And it was like we it caught us so off balance that it was like for a minute I was numb. But, mm-hmm. you know, I had one child that was murdered and that was my only child. And he was killed and left in the field and bled to death and died. Mm. So the whole thing about losing people you love and losing loved ones, um, it has a really serious effect on my heart. I'm about to cry. And the reason why is because life is entirely 
unpredictable. So when you love people, you love them. And you don't let nothing get in the way of loving people that are in your life because in a twinkling of an eye, they could be gone. So when Deborah was laying in the bed and we all just thought, we were in Texas at one time getting ready to do a part in a movie, a little sitcom movie thing, and we got a phone call that they didn't think she was going to make it through the night. <clears throat> and I called the people who had hired us and said, listen, I, I we, we would love to do this, but we just got a phone call about our sister. And one thing Deborah said to us while laying in that bed was, don't leave me. Mm. And that's all I could hear ringing in my ears, don't leave me. So the guy who flew us to Texas, he said, I understand. And he got us a flight that same day. We had just gotten there. He got us a flight that same day back home. And when Deborah opened up her eyes, we were all around her bed mm. with our head laying by her feet and everything. We were right there. And I remember her smiling. And so in my mind and heart, I thought she was going to get well. She was going to pull through. This, the, the, the heart and the soul mm. and the spirit that comes in your music, um, I feel. Mm. I feel, and I know a lot of other people do. And it's this transformative thing, you know? Like when we were talking before we did this show, you all said that, you were called to this path mm-hmm. to do, to perform and to share this with people. So they then, therefore themselves, they can maybe transform themselves through the music. Because mm-hmm. like you all said, you understand life. You understand life is joy and life mm-hmm. is also pain. I personally think you have to experience both to yeah. know what both are. Mm-hmm. And has has there ever, ever been in a moment where, you know, you performed in front of a lot of unlikely audiences. Have you ever been a moment where you walked into a venue where people didn't expect or didn't really like that y'all were there, and you brought something to the stage that really affected them? Um, yes, I think we had mentioned it once before when we were in Texas. Hmm. And uh, so I think te- Texas is one of the places that still have little issues. And uh, so we everywhere we go, we don't compromise, no matter where it is. Um, and we may be the only uh, church or Jesus or whatever you want to say, they may see. We can go to a club and we're still not gonna compromise. Well, you hired us and you know it was a club, so this is what we do. So one particular place we went and we sung and as we was going down the ramp, this young man came up the ramp, took the mic and started talking about how he felt, what he was still dealing with, the prejudice in, in his heart and blah, blah, and said, some of you still out here feel the same way. But that particular night, I feel like that he gave his life to the Lord and mm-hmm. he apologized wow. for being prejudiced. So things like that happen. Um, that was in front of the scene, but behind the scene, a lot of stuff happens when we go mm-hmm. sing different places and to know that um, we're able to go and do what God has called us to do. If it's just one, somebody to make a difference in their lives. Yeah. We had a manager, uh, uh, we still work with him sometimes, but he would uh, kind of block that stuff, the prejudice stuff. Mm-hmm. He would kind of block that and keep it away away from us, you know. 
And uh, I appreciated that for him. So he took away a lot of the experiences we could have had that he just took it upon himself, you know. You know, I was going to ask this question about to y'all. We only have like just barely two minutes left. I wanted to ask this question of what it takes for gospel music to evolve. But seeing that you all have performed with so many people, I mean, Bob Dylan to Carrie (laughs) Underwood, like I said, everyone, you've had these experiences, you've been across the world and you've affected people. So I'm going to ask you all this. What does it take for human beings to evolve from where we are right now? Huh? Um, I think one of the things that we have to do is uh, love each other. I mean, that's simple. And everybody says, you know, just that. Honestly, yes, just that. We have to learn and not just love but accept. Mm-hmm. I say God loves difference He lo- because he made difference. We did, We could be exactly the same talk the same, walk the same, Mm -hmm. but he made us different. He loves different. We have to learn to accept each other. I I think that you can't use hate and create love. Only love can kill hate. You can't take darkness and expect to get light. Light is the only thing that can get rid of darkness. And we have to get to a point in our personal lives where if I evolve in love, if I let love be exactly what love is supposed to be within me, then I can be the light and the love that some people need in order to see where they need to go. I'm not trying to tell nobody how to live their life or what to feel, but if I am love, love is contagious. Somebody else will feel it. Mm -hmm. And I just say love is the key. Love is the key for all things. And if we can just learn to get there. I I really, (laughs) this is one of my favorite episodes. Thank you all all so much. Thank you. And Regina and Alfredo are the McCrary sisters, Nashville gospel royalty, y'all. Again, thank you all for coming on to this show. Thanks for having us. Such a wonderful pleasure. Thank you. God bless you. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by yours truly. Directed by Tasha A.F. Lemley, our senior producer, our board operators, Liv Lombardi, the masterminds behind our theme musical, LaRange, and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Julie Height. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts, and the conversation does not end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.